Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. It has been quite a couple of weeks. Just as we are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel and the COVID-19 lockdown and the worldwide pandemic, we've learned of the horrific killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And that killing has led to a series of protests that have spread all across the USA and now elsewhere, including uh, here in the UK. So to try to help us make a little bit of sense of this and the political fallout, we welcome back Roy Phil Brown. Welcome, Roy Phil. Uh, good to Hello. have you. Hello, Martin. How are you? Thank you for having me back. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for coming back. Do you want to uh, just tell any new listeners about your podcast and sort of who you are and what you do? Sure. I do uh, a numerous amount of podcasts, but maybe the most applicable one or the reason why I've been called back is a thing called Mid-Atlantic, which looks at US and UK politics, and, and actually now has started to squeeze in Canadian politics as well. So we do a compare and contrast between both sides of the Atlantic. Great. Well, very good person to speak to then. I mean, first of all, could, do you want to take on the pretty unenviable task of recapping um, where we are, how we got here, and trying to help us make some sense of what's going on? Absolutely. I'll, I'll try my best. On May 25th, George Floyd, a African-American, was uh, killed uh, by the police. A uh, policeman uh, kneeled on him for just short of nine minutes, uh, starved him of, of oxygen. The policeman, just with impunity, just continued to kneel on his neck. And this was filmed by at least two, if not three, bystanders who kind of called out to the policeman, you, you are killing him, you're killing him. There are four police officers by the time uh, an ambulance came, which was just after um, just after nine minutes, basically he was uh, as good as dead and he died in the ambulance. Uh, by the next day, that's when things started uh, to take on a different shape and form. Very obviously, Africa, African-American males um, being killed by the police is nothing new. But by the Tuesday, uh, the uh, Minneapolis police chief fired all four policemen. That doesn't really happen. And then the, uh, the mayor of Minneapolis also said, why weren't these men already being, why weren't these police officers already being, being arrested? Again, that doesn't happen. And so at the backdrop of that, two days later, protests erupt, erupt around the US with massive demonstrations in Minneapolis, Memphis and Los Angeles. Um, with these protests come riots and again unprecedented police unions in america and other police chiefs say enough is enough what these officers have done is totally uh, egregious and beyond the pale uh, for police unions to uh, abandon police officers in the u.s just does not happen um by three days in the national guard has been mobilized in minnesota so much is the actual rioting. Um, so you then, so it takes four days after the initial murder, George Floyd, for the, uh, for the first, for, for the police officer, George Sharvin, actually to be charged with his murder. Again, um, not administrative leave, not, uh, we're going to have some kind of investigation. Um, it was four days, but, such was the um, such was the anger of common decent Americans that it felt much longer, but it was uh, four days. Um, by the 29th, you have protests in just about every major U.S. city, and we're talking about tens of thousands of people. There's a protest in Atlanta and New York, and those two specific um, protests, there is um, violence and a severe police crackdown. Um, by May the 30th, the Minneapolis mayor has said that peaceful protests have turned into domestic terrorism. Um, May 31st, protests fill 140 American cities. Every US state has at least seen uh, a, pr a protest of some size. Trump, by June the 1st, threatens to deploy the military. Um, and in, 
an incident which I think will go down in infamy, which will actually will mark this kind of pivot point in American history on June the 2nd uh, to display uh, strength. Uh, Trump gets uh, peaceful demonstrators tear-gassed from Lafayette Park so he can have a photo opportunity outside of a church holding a Bible upside down. At the backdrop of all of this is the fact that uh, the regular organs of the establishment are all saying that something is up here. Um, new charges by June the 3rd, new charges are filed against the police officers in George Floyd's uh, murder. Quite simply, um, and there's a bit of an uproar um, with the first charges that were brought and more severe charges are actually brought. So there is some level of people power. That public prosecutor was under pressure to utterly throw the book at uh, Derek Chauvin. Um, by June the 4th, James Mattis... Um, he was the ex-defense secretary, does something else unprecedented. He says that Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who doesn't try to unite the American people. It's been really stark that the the commander-in-chief hasn't been the consoler-in-chief at all in this. What he has done um, is basically say, say law and order, law and order, and, and, and he's been saying, and he said to governors, and to mayors, they need to be stronger with the demonstrators. Bearing in mind, yes, there has been violence, but by June the 4th, literally all demonstrations are now peaceful. And even when, even after the first three days of the protests, they were still largely, largely peaceful. What I haven't even said is that um, New York and various other American cities actually had curfews as well. So you had a situation whereby... Um, the National Guard, state troopers and police were putting curfews in New York. Initially, it was 11 o'clock, then it was brought down to 8 o'clock. So you had some level of uh, martial law in some American cities. So the backdrop of all of this is the fact that uh, people now are really looking at the police everywhere in the United States. And the police uh, prove everybody right by saying that they need scrutiny by uh, numerous acts of police brutality. Um, significant is on June the 6th, two Buffalo police officers were charged with assault when um, a 75-year-old man is seen to be approaching uh, a couple of police officers. They casually push him to one side. He, he, tumbles over backwards, cracks his head, and there is clearly blood seeping out, and a whole phalanx of police officers just march past him. Scenes like this have been repeated numerous times with people seeing that the police are using excessive force on um, peaceful uh, protesters. June the 7th, uh, Colin Powell, the ex-Foreign um, Secretary or Secretary of State, sorry to use the American term, says that Trump lies. So we get senior Republicans and military figures starting to say uh, that this president is beyond the pale. Um, June the 8th, Minneapolis law officers, uh, lawmakers, sorry, vowed to disband the police department, a completely and utterly historic move. By June the 8th, you have this cry that we need to defund the police. And Minneapolis says, we're going to disband the, the police department. June the 9th, Mitt Romney, the ex-Republican uh, nominee to be president in 2012, goes on a Black Lives Matters march. You, the, the, this is all unprecedented stuff. Um, the president is beleaguered. Um, Joe Biden is being much more presidential than the president. Uh, Republicans in Congress and in the Senate uh, are... Be, being incredibly tight, though Tom Cotton um, has come out and said, he's a senator, Republican senator, came out today and said that African-Americans do not have the same treatment from the police that the that other Americans do, that white Americans do. You know, again, this is all unprecedented, and that's before you talk about what's happened in the United Kingdom, 
with the pulling down of the Colson statue in, in, in Bristol, um, with people, look, with the fact that I went on a march in Birmingham uh, with my parents, and that there must have been easily 10,000 people in the centre of Birmingham. Um, the whole world has realised that um, you can't just be, uh, you can't just say that you are against racism, racism. you have to be anti-racist and there are systemic forces which are keeping their knee on the black on the neck of black people there you go wow thanks Royfield one question that sort of jumps out at me is given that the response was so um, unusual in that charges were brought action was taken why is it this particular incident that sparked off such a response there's two elements. There's a few elements. Number one, it's the drip, drip, drip. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And I've been asked this a few times. And I, and I think also key for me is this, the, the fact that the very same day, and this actually broke first, there was a woman in, in um, Central Park in New York, Amy Cooper, who threatened uh, an African-American man with uh, calling the police because he told her that her dog needed to be on a leash. Her dog uh, wasn't allowed by park bylaws to be running around off of a leash. And she said, I will call the police. She knew that um, her white privilege uh, would buy her at least, at the very least, the police would believe her. And he was an African-American man, a black man. She knew this. And when that video broke, I think everybody who comes wrapped up in white skin could actually see what was going on underneath the surface. She knew it. The African-American man knew knew it. And also, so did anybody watching. Um, She knew that she could threaten somebody with the police. And she said, there is a black man and he's threatening me. He wasn't at all. So I think... White folks get it now with, with white privilege. It has to be said, it's also the COVID-19 pandemic. You had millions of people in the United Kingdom and to a lesser degree in the, sorry, in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom and around the world who had been cooped up for months and needed, um, not they needed, but had an excuse to go out and to get angry. Also allied to this is the fact that you have a president who is from casting central of bad guys. What Donald Trump has done is to go to his playbook, which is these protests are anti-American, these people are, uh, are looters. You know, at one point he says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Now, If you know anything about American history, that is just, in effect, law and order, in inverted commas, but against uh, black protest. He didn't say that by accident. So you have somebody who is stunningly ill-placed to be the commander-in-chief of the United United States and to be able to console, to reassure, and to be calming – and he's done everything wrong. So within that, that perfect storm, the weather was good. COVID-19, people cooped up. It was just one thing to, it was one murder too many. You had people now getting it because we were all on social media and watching videos of uh, white people displaying um, ignorance and, and arrogance uh, against African-Americans. Within this kind of maelstrom, you have this black man who was was choked to death casually. Every other video, you know, as a black man, every other video, I would say, that which we use, whether it's, um, we, we, didn't, we didn't see the video for Trayvon Martin, but we heard it. We're, um... um the gentleman in New York who was choked, choked by, by the police and selling cigarettes. Philando Castile, we saw that video. In every 
free video, even though white America knew these things were wrong, you could say, yeah, but, you know, when Philander Castile said, okay, I legally have a gun uh, permit, I'm reaching to get it, even though he said to the police officer and his partner is there and everybody knew it was wrong, still enough white Americans could say, yeah, but he was reaching for something and that officer wasn't quite sure that's the reason why he shot. This, they, there was nothing, on no level, on no level could you condone what this policeman did. Every other case, it was like, you know, that policeman... I gave him the 1% of, of the doubt, even though 99% of the evidence was pointing completely in, in, in the direction that uh, this black person was unlawfully killed. But in this, it was 100%. He wasn't resisting arrest. He wasn't struggling. He, he complied with the police. And the policeman did it with his hands in his pocket. That and the other circumstances uh, has just lit uh, an incredibly large fire under America and um, civil compliance right now. Thanks, Rofford. That's incredibly powerful. So, Steve, we are here to talk about sort of the centre ground and moderate politics. So is there a centre ground on all of this? What should moderates sort of do and what should they make of it? Um, I mean, we'd love to talk about centre ground on, on almost every issue, but I think on this one, the answer primarily is, is no, there isn't. We've got to say that racism is wrong, is wrong and police brutality is wrong. And uh, the way I think we'd want this sort of political moment to be thought of is a point where people came together and realised that. Um, so I think that's the important thing to say. Uh, obviously, the situation is quite complicated, and, and Wolfold, you explained it brilliantly in so much detail, the all different things going on, but we've seen a sort of, we've seen, we've seen protests during a pandemic and the various rules coming, uh, sort of clashing into each other there. Um, and reports are very difficult to follow about violence and things. My sense very much was that in the US, it was the police proving the protesters right. My sense in the UK, and I'd be interested to get your take on both your takes on whether you agree with this, is that what we saw was, was lots of peaceful protests and a few people who took it a bit too far. I thought the police were perhaps a bit more restrained, but it is very hard to separate these things out. I realised that I'm also dodging the kind of wider issue, just to talk about police brutality and things. It's not, not the whole story. And, of course, the protests were also signalling them sort of wider injustices and systematic racism. And so I think from a sort of moderate perspective, we, we need to acknowledge the extent of the systematic racism. And sometimes I think it can be challenging for people uh, like me or moderates to reconcile that with my general belief that, say, Britain, for example, the liberal intolerant place. So perhaps the centre ground is somewhere in, uh, you know, absolutely acknowledging that and working out how we reconcile that as we sort of move forward. One of the sort of big things I think people are asking is what these sort of movements and protests hope to achieve. And that feels something that people, certainly in the UK, are, uh, are trying to sort of get a handle on, I think, and to how we can actually um, do something, make a change. Um, so let, can we start with what the protests are about? Obviously, there's the, the anger, but then um, there's you mentioned the uh, desire to dissolve the police department and the mayor of Los Angeles has cut $150 million from the L.A. Police Department budget and the, um, Minneapolis have pledged to dissolve the city's police department. Mm -hmm. So how on earth are these things going to work and is it enough? What, what's your take? Um, America, uh, I've said this a few times now, I'm always surprised, at least it took me some time for me to realise when I first started going over to America, that I didn't see as many policemen on the street as I thought. And I had to really scratch my head to analyse why I thought that it almost feels like America is under-policed in, 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 in many ways. And quite simply, it's this. Being British, we've all grown up watching American dramas, of which the vast majority are cop dramas. 
So I literally thought that five minutes, you see a cop car going up and down the road with a, a policeman eating a donut. Um, so visibly, you don't actually see that many policemen. But America is very different from the UK. Um, some bits of America are under-policed and then over-policed. Um, so you have... Um, so it was um, St. Louis... In some areas of St. Louis, the police department aggressively go after minority neighbourhoods for traffic offences and for any, anything which you can be fined for as a way of funding the police. That doesn't happen in the UK, doesn't it? But it's quite common in the US. People want that to change. One of the things which people want to change is the unaccountability of the police. As I said in, in my summary, within less than 48 hours, this killing was weird because police unions um, basically said no. The police unions always circle the wagons around police officers and say no, right? You don't know the stress that they're under, blue lives matter, etc., etc. This was very quickly um, that had changed. Something needs to be done about the power of police unions, unaccountability, um, statutory immunity that police officers actually have, and also with their complicit, with their coziness with uh, public prosecutors. Because you vote for your public prosecutor in the U.S., Generally, what always happens is that public prosecutor says, I'm going to be tougher than the last person on crime, and I'm going to devote more money to the police. So police unions invariably are throwing tens of millions of dollars into local elections to get that public prosecutor to be tougher. People want that over. Now, with the whole defund the police movement, it does sound kind of crazy, what do you mean to defund the police? Why are we going to have anarchy? People are going to be like, you know, who's going to police us? But, again, the, pol- the police are called out to situations, to literally every situation in, in the United States. And so, in San Francisco, um, there's a massive homeless problem. And there are people physically sleeping on the streets in the downtown um, in the Tenderloin. The police are called out to deal with this. So what people are saying when they're saying, let's defund the police, is like saying, like, you know, what? There's $150 million for argument, say, which you give to the San Francisco PD. You know, quote me on these figures, but I'm just... You know. Instead of, when there's a homeless incident, getting the police to turn up in a cop car and to move this homeless person on, spend some of that money on some, some housing some counselling. No one is talking about defunding the police in any municipality in the United States so that there is not a police force. What's happening in Minneapolis is actually a restructuring. So, yes, they're going to um, root and branch change it, but there still will be policemen. But what people are saying is that we've over-militarised the police, they have too much kit, which is all ex-military kit, what people are saying is we call the police out for everything. You know, if there's a, a domestic dispute, maybe the police need to be called. Maybe they don't. Maybe councillors can go, go along. In, instead of throwing uh, people in jail for being homeless or moving them on, maybe we can have some kind of homeless halfway house refuges. That's what people are saying. It's not by accident that in America, that America, out of all countries in the world, per head of the population, it bangs up more than even China. Per head of the population, more Americans are behind bars. There's two million behind bars. People are saying that this criminal police industrial complex needs to go. It's the only area of American life where Republicans, right-wingers, are quite happy to say that there's a union. They hate hate teaching unions. They hate unions 
in the public sector, they hate unions in the private sector, but police unions are fine because they're seen as this bastion of, in inverted commas, law and order. And what this whole situation has done is made people realise that the police are not fair and equitable with the way that they meet out justice. Tip of that injustice uh, spear is the amount of men of colour and women of colour who die at the hands of the police. But it, it's systematic. And, and, and for the first time, the average white American who's not confronted by race issues can see this. Because they know that they're confronted by a police officer in literally every situation they don't fear for their lives. I said this at the start of last week's Mid-Atlantic show. Every black teenager in the United Kingdom gets the speech from your parents. It's just a case of when. Do you get it when you're 12? Do you get it when you're 13? Do you get it when you're 16? But you're going to get it. And it goes like this. The police do not see you as equal to your white friends. You will be out at some point, whether you're in, in a car or walking down the street, and the police will treat you as guilty regardless of what you've done or haven't done. Welcome to the world. Every black teenager gets that speech. And white America, the white population of the United Kingdom, get it now. So what are these uh, protests hoping to achieve? Police accountability. Um, a recognition that the experience of black citizens isn't the same as it is for white citizens. And for there to be systematic change in that. For, for people to actually look at the symbols and the totems of power, I thought it was incredibly moving that that statue was pulled down in Bristol. Um, Bristol's a city which I, I, I absolutely adore and it has a really great history um, of fomenting Jamaican music with an English sensibility. Massive attack comes from Bristol, Smith and Mighty, um, all, that, all that type of thing. I remember 1990 going to Bristol for the second time and this wasn't around St Paul's Carnival and my white friend said, see that statue up there? That person was a slave trader. And, and he was giving me a tour of Bristol. People in Bristol are very uh, politically connected and, and, and savvy. And I remember thinking, crumbs, right? As a proud Brummie, I can't think of statues and places in Birmingham which have this whole layer of slavery dolloped onto them. Bristol's a port city. There's reasons for it. Bristol's actually really an older city in Birmingham in terms of it becoming big, etc. But these issues were, were, were... This isn't what people just all of a sudden deciding to pull down that statue. There have been petitions for years. to so be people arguing that they, we are lionising the wrong people from the history of the city. It was also ironic as well that you had the mayor of Bristol, who's a, a black guy, basically saying that this is a criminal damage. So um, it, it, fundamentally, there are some complicated strands in this whole movement. But fundamentally, it's simple. We just want equal treatment. If I'm stopped by the police, I shouldn't have to worry that he's going to automatically think that I've done something just because of the colour of my skin. Just the last thing on, last thing on that, because every black person in the United Kingdom will, will tell you this, we all have our police stories. I've never been beaten up by the police or roughed up by the police. I haven't. But I've been stopped. When I was at college um, at Worthing on the South Coast, in my first... I'm going to say month, I was stopped three times by the police. So I've come from diverse Birmingham, where um, 35%, 40% of the population is non-white. Never been stopped by the police. I go to this 99.9% .9 white town. Within the first month, 
I was stopped three times by the police. The last time was at nine o'clock uh, Monday morning and I'm walking to college and they pulled over to me and said, where are you going? By the third time in less than a month, I says, you know what? I've got somewhere to go. I'm not even going to stop. And they said, come on, tell us where you're going. I said, no, no. I said, I don't have to say anything. I didn't even stop by the third time. And they said, I'll never get this. We know who you are and where you're going, Rory. We'll keep our eye on you. And they drove off. Every black person in the United Kingdom and the United States has similar stories. For the first time, people now believe us. Thanks. Um, should we talk about some of the, the more sort of specific things? So that there are proposals from the Democrats in Congress, for example, about making certain changes. So uh, on Monday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, they backed the Congressional Black Caucus in a bill which aims to force the federal police to use body and dashboard cameras Bans chokeholds, uh, get rid of unannounced police raids known as no-knock warrants, make it easier to hold police liable for civil rights violations and cause for federal funds to be withheld from local police forces who don't make these sort of reforms. So do you think, is that the right sort of thing? Is that the sort of thing that you think will help things? One of the problems with the structure of America is its federal uh, system. So there's only so much that uh, Congress, the president, uh, can actually do. Um, specifically when it comes to policing, there's a lot of local um, account, not just accountability, uh, local variants, shall we say. But yes, you know, chokehold, you know, banned, etc. But it's for each city really to come up with its own solutions. But what you know, so the so Congress or the Senate or the President can't say let's defund the police. But I think there's just about enough pressure now that in um, many major cities that uh, Democratic lawmakers can actually say no, we need to reallocate police uh, funds. I think what Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, et al. can do is set a tone. But actually, there isn't that that much they can do. Um, the power of the police unions need, needs to be broken. Um, and the coziness between, as I said before, police unions and public prosecutors needs to be broken. Police need to be made accountable in the court of public opinion. Those things aren't actually in the purview of, of, of Congress per se, but they can set the tone. They can say there needs to be change. They can put pressure where they can. Um, and, yeah, body cams. But we, we, we've had body cams for how long and these murders still been going on? More important than the body cams has been the, ubiquitous, the ubiquity of the smartphone. That's the only reason why we're here. And as many commentators have said, if the police can do what they do and they have body cams and people are filming them, what are they doing when people aren't filming them and what did they do before the smartphone? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Steve, you've been a fairly peripheral figure in this so far, but let's broaden it out to the UK and shift the sort of focus over here. So... Um, so in the UK context, Trevor Phillips wrote in the Times recently, calling on people to move beyond removing statues, saying that, quote, dancing around the symbolic corpse is never going to bring about meaningful change, end quote. So what are the sort of concrete demands in the UK? Well, I, I, I was trying to find the answer set earlier, and I actually haven't been able to find too much in the way of demands of the kind you're just talking about, such as things like police reform and wider criminal justice. However, I actually wonder whether Trevor Phillips is wrong, because I was looking at the news over the last couple of days. I've seen, for example, that uh, Liverpool University are now going to rename a building that was named like William Gladstone, uh, who at uh, the time back in the 1800s supported uh, or, or wasn't exactly a big um, proponent of abolishing slavery, uh, and so to recognise that, 
that building's going to be renamed. I think you, I believe you've seen a statue of someone called Robert Milligan removed in London, outside the London Museum recently. And Sadiq Khan's announced a broader review into these things. So I'm not sure anyone has gone under to a pulpit and called for that in a very public way. But I think you are starting to see the pressure create change. I mean, I, I for one, I didn't have any idea that these many of these statues still existed. Um, and I guess that's somewhat surprising that we hadn't done this years ago. But I think that maybe is the point of why of why there's so much sympathy for people that pulled down the statue in Bristol, because it felt like that the democratic route, whatever that is, locally, uh, just wasn't getting anywhere. And so while the sort of dancing around in a slightly mobbish way maybe it isn't, isn't the nicest image, you can have a lot of sympathy for the, with their frustration that hadn't been done years ago. Um, but the, the wider point, I think, was that maybe the pressure creates um, the need for change. What maybe has to happen now in the UK, in the way that perhaps is happening in the US, is that progressive politicians need to start thinking up some ideas in the way that um, uh, some of the Democrats in, in Congress have done. And uh, maybe maybe that's the next step for the likes of Keir Starmer to, to think about next. There is one, one way where the UK situation does chime with the US. Um, last autumn, UK government said they were going to spend, I forget how much, on tasers for the police force. Um, all the data, you know, we've had tasers long enough now and all the data has come out saying that if you're black, you're more likely to be tasered. And then if you are black and you are tasered, you're more likely to have serious harm happen to you. So here is a an inflection point where we can actually look at that government policy. We can actually hold UK police forces to account and uh, and basically say, do we need tasers? Because I would arguably say that we don't. Um, one of the banners which was held up at Birmingham at the Black Lives Matter rally was for Dalian Atkinson, the ex-Aston Villa footballer, who um, was tasered and killed um, by a police force, I'm going to say it was about three years ago now. At that point in his life, um, he was having some mental health issues and um, he was tasered and killed. But again, we, we've got the data now in the UK, and we can clearly see that when police officers uh, with tasers are confronted by a black male, they're more likely to taser them, and those outcomes are more likely to be deadly. Not me making it up, it's government statistics. It's there. Thanks. Okay, let's move on to the uh, inescapable politics of all of this. So a recent poll shows that 80% of Americans feel that their country is drifting out of control. This is a poll by the uh, Wall Street Journal and NBC News. Twice as many people are troubled by the actions of the police who killed Floyd than are worried by the violence at some protests. Oh, I think that's a um, positive finding. Mm. There is the small matter of the presidential election in five months. Trump is dealing with COVID-19 and a sort of civil rights movement. So it's fair to say Trump has taken a knock due to his handling of both situations. We've seen, as, as you mentioned, Colin Powell and Mitt Romney, of senior Republicans, move against him, and Republicans against Trump are running attack ads. So is Trump's coalition doomed? How well are the Democrats are working together and... Um, how well are the forces of Biden and Sanders joining? So is this the sort of another nail in his electoral coffin, do you think, Royfield? Um, in normal circumstances, you'd say absolutely, but these aren't normal circumstances. And nobody thought uh, back in 2016 he'd be elected in the first place. So um, I wouldn't put it past Donald Trump uh, to be able to find one way of uh, some way of kind of continuing in office but it does look bleak with, with you know, every conventional notion is that he cannot um, get out of this however um, most Americans live in quite segregated communities i.e. if you're white your neighbours are most likely going to be white if they're black most likely to be black there is a whole swath of middle of America who are looking at this and they don't recognise what they're seeing. They might have tinges of guilt now, and I think that's what's really pushed this um, to be that 140 American cities have seen mass demonstrations. But still, 
his uh, approval rating, if the polls are to be believed, is just over 40%. It's about 41%. I can't believe it's so high. I would have thought, considering all of the mistakes that this man has done, it would be down at like 32%, 35% tops. Even down just to 30, sorry, to 41%, um, he's heading for a historic defeat, he is, because fundamentally America is a 50-50 country, and uh, with that electoral college system, this would be a stunning defeat if he's at 41%. But the job figures came out just to, just before the weekend, and they were surprisingly good. There's loads of caveats for that, with people being furloughed and et cetera, but they were much better. And uh, the unemployment figure came down um, kind of considerably in terms of percentages, but there's still 30, America, 30 million Americans unemployed. What Trump might be able to do, if we aren't careful, is to say that things are getting better. America is roaring back. Um, let's say that there isn't a second spike with the pandemic and that the election can happen in a relatively conventional way. Uh, Americans are going back to work. It's still going to be historic highs in terms of unemployment, but at least it's come, that figure is coming down. You have people not on the streets. You've had some cities uh, tinkering with their police departments. You know, one thing... Joe Biden is the consoler-in-chief, and he had a great, um, well, I wouldn't say it was great, I thought it was a little bit sugary, but he put out a campaign ad where he spoke to George Floyd's daughter, um, you know, saying things like, you you know, your daddy, you, you won't have that big bear head from your daddy again and go on his shoulders and, and, and reach to the sky, and that can, should never happen again in America, etc. Joe Biden is consoling and trying to put his arms around America and unite America. Um, but arguably, I would say that um, he's the wrong person. He's the Democratic nominee, but he's the wrong person right now. If you had somebody a little bit more dynamic and actually younger, um, that presidential nominee would actually enthuse younger Americans who generally don't tend to vote. You know, Joe Biden might just be a little bit too Uncle Joe. And really what you need is somebody with righteous indignation, a great orator. You know, what we need is to 2020s Martin Luther King. And I'm not saying that this person is a black politician at all. You make a strong argument for saying that actually to heal this nation right now, what you need is a right-wing politician, and, and actually, I think Mitt Romney, and I'm thinking of writing a piece about this, it's a real shame that um, somebody like Mitt Romney can't actually run, and this might sound like anathema considering I'm so left of centre, but America needs to get through this process and it's going to need to heal and part of that healing process is for white Americans who, for very understandable reasons, don't think about this stuff day in, day out, to go with change. That would be much easier for them to understand and to stomach if somebody whose uh, credentials as being a right-thinking American are beyond reproach. That's Mitt Romney. Here is somebody who actually... You know, he's a Republican senator from Utah, one of the most conservative states going, and actually was on a black line today. It's like, you can't make this stuff up. So everything's up in the air. I wouldn't say that Trump is dead in the water, but it needs somebody. There's a position for an intelligent, energetic, compassionate, brave politician right now to um, grab the mic. Can I, can I jump in? So I was thinking about what you were saying a little bit earlier on. Um, I remember Trump early on, it looked like he thought he could play the kind of law and order card, be very divisive, and that would just consolidate his base. But from what you said and what mine said in the polling, it looks like that hasn't worked. Do you think that's right? Do you think, it, do you think that strategy has failed for Trump? 
right here and now, it hasn't worked. And one of the reasons why it hasn't worked is because the looting and the rioting has stopped. It's one of the, you know, it's one of the truths of modern media that, you know, you, you see flames, you see broken windows and cameras want to be there because that, that's drama. You see a whole phalanx of police officers marching down the down street. Um, that, that's a newsworthy event. You know, 10,000 people marching down the street peacefully and then going home isn't as newsworthy. Trump needed the violence to continue and it hasn't. Second week has been violence-free, apart from police thuggery. <laughs> you know, if, if ever the police should have been on their game and, let's say, whiter than white, they've let themselves down. It's a historic own goal. Um, though you have seen the odd occasional policeman and sheriff. There's one famously in uh, Michigan who turned up with these, with these guys all in riot gear. And he says, guys, let's take them off. And he took, took them off, started hugging the, the protesters. So I'm going to march with you because Black Lives Matter. You know, that's what the, the, every police department in the United States should, should be doing that right now. Okay, well, let's just finish up by talking about the, um, the UK. So, Steve, the, um, the UK more widely and Johnson and the government, popularity seems to be not in as good a place um, the Daily Express, no less, has reported that he's the least popular leader in the world, minus 15 approval rating. The, um, there's a piece in the article by Peter Kellner showing that Labour is pulling ahead on some of the sort of metrics that they use, especially around who's most out of touch, who cares for ordinary people, who's trustworthy, who does the right thing, and serves their, or serves their own interests, and who is incompetent or competent. Labour apparently is leading in all of those, according to Kellner. So would you like to just finish in a couple of minutes by giving a bit of an overview of the UK situation? Yeah, sure. Um, my, my sense is that uh, Boris and his government are suffering more from COVID-19 than a mishandling of the of this particular moment with the, with the process, protests. Um, the headlines on that have been rumbling on for a while, and, uh, and clearly there's many things the government got wrong on, on, the, on the pandemic. I think they've managed to avoid the kind of awful mistakes that Trump made um, in, the la- in large part. They've sort of kept their heads fairly down throughout the, throughout the protests. Um, and while there's been a sort of much subtler law and order message, I don't think it's been nearly as divisive uh, here is in, in the States. Um, uh, one way of testing that is comparing it to with a statement that Keir Starmer put out, which, uh, again, was quite, was quite balanced and maybe telling me so. The one thing that he said that was a little different was that, you know, acknowledging that it was sort of breaking the law to pull down that statue in Bristol, he did make quite a strong statement saying it shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure yet in the UK this has become a, uh, an issue that is really affecting how people see the two major parties. It may, I, I wonder whether that may change if we see it up the agenda for, for longer. But um, I, think, I think still the, the sort of polling is more driven by the virus than it is uh, uh, the protests. Right, Paul, do you want to um, have the yeah. last word? I'm a big fan of uh, both codes of football. So uh, I know this is a podcast that so people can't see me. I know you guys can, but I've got my Cleveland Browns um, hoodie on right now. Um, I like American football, uh, then I like proper football too, you know. Um, one of the big things that's going to come out of this is the advocacy of black sportsmen. Uh, Raheem Sterling went on Newsnight the other day and was very powerful in um, his condemnation of, uh, of racism. And again, it's a case of, you know, don't just say you're not racist, be anti-racist. You know, and specifically in in English football, there's a massive problem with the amount of black managers. I forget how many of the players are are, are black. Um, it could be thirty percent. It's going to be around that figure. Um, so logic would tell you that maybe thirty percent of the managers should be black, and it, and you can count them on the in the English league, uh, which is ninety two professional clubs. 
I think there's five, something like that. And this is systemic. So, um, so that, and football has now woken up to that, you know, uh, you know, the FA with the let's kick out racism and whatever. And these well-meaning but half-hearted schemes have gone, oh, so something's up here. And Raheem Sterling for years has been talking about these issues. Uh, Gareth Southgate, the England manager, says, yep, yeah, I've got white privilege. The England manager is saying things like, well, I got in to be a manager of Middlesbrough without the proper coaching qualifications. You know, why is it that the other black players who I played with couldn't start so high, etc.? Um, and then in America, there's been a massive sea change with the NFL, the National Football League, which is the equivalent to our FA, the Football Association, admitting that the way it treated Colin Kaepernick was beyond the pale, that actually all he was doing was highlighting this stuff three years ago, peacefully protesting, and he's castigated and, again, <laughs> loaded racial language, blackballed, so he can't get a job now in, in, in the NFL. So um, that, for me, is one of the like, powerful things to come out of this, that the NFL says that we've been treating the players uh, wrong, and, and it's something like 80% of the players in American football are African-American, and they realise their, their strength now. You know, it's just a shame it took the death of uh, George Floyd for, for them to really act, act, act as one in this regard. And, and it's interesting that in, in the world of basketball, basketball players are much more politically active. And it's because the consumer base is actually younger for basketball than it is American football, which is seen as uh, more conservative in, in inverted commas. But, um, you know, uh, th- there are societal changes which, which will come out of this. And, um, dare I say, all the people are on the, on, on the right side and on the side of change need to keep pushing um, and don't let up the momentum because this is a literally a once-in-a-generational moment where people have coalesced around uh, the evil that is uh, racism and subconscious racism, subconscious bias. People get it now. You know, it's, as I say, it's not good enough just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not racist. You've got to be anti-racist because you've got to question yourself and question why uh, we believe certain things, why certain things are acceptable. And it it is systemic. And, you know, there's one institution, I'll just end up here, because I know this is fundamentally being the Royfield just keeps on talking show. Um, There's one institution which plays a lot of lip service to um, diversity, and it's the BBC. I've been to BBC Television Centre on numerous occasions. You know, to meet friends, I'm, I'm hardly, I'm not in front of the camera. You walk into the BBC and you see, the first people you see, the people on the desks, it's diverse. Black, white, brown, women, men, etc. You walk through those doors where all the reporters are and all the journalists and all the production staff. It's a snowstorm. And that's in one of the most diverse cities in Europe, you know, so let's hope, I'm not going to say let's hope, you know, there will be change that will come out of this. Well, um, amen to that, Royfield, and please don't apologise for talking too much. That was both incredibly insightful and incredibly powerful. Um, And thank you very much again for coming on the podcast. You're always welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me on.